Welcome to Maker Skills, exploring your internal toolkit with PJ, Tanda, and Tom. Welcome back, everyone, for episode 23. I don't think there's any special significance about 23, other than it's a prime number. However, Michael Jordan, chromosomes. I stand corrected. Apparently, there is some. You're sitting. We're, we're supposed to be talking Pe- about Michael Jordan's DNA. Um, I, I, I was not. I thought we were talking about sewing today. Oh. Uh, sewing? That I thought so. Oh, what skill class is sewing? Uh, sewing is a class three skill. Oh. So class know. three. We should talk about that. All right, all right. We're going to talk about it. Uh, Tom looked like he was ready to say something. Do you? Do you have a? Do you have something for? I was just. I just wanted to point out, but the topic is always a surprise to me. It's my favorite part of this podcast. Yeah, we we know, Tom. We know. Did you do, you still didn't do any research for the topic, did you? Well, seeing how last week I thought we were talking about sewing, and now this week, so I've had two weeks to prepare, I got a little bit. I'm literally shocked and amazed. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Well, let's let Tom run with it. I Me neither. I can't wait till to hear what I have to say. <laughs> Whenever you're ready, Tom, just go for it. <laughs> oh, it's me, it's me, it's me. Yeah, so uh, I didn't do any uh, history research, of course, because that would be within the guidelines of this podcast. And, well, that's just not me. I have some fun facts that I think, well, you'll, you'll hear them. So apparently cotton lasts for 100 years, which, which I have a hard time believing because sheep only live to about... 10 or 12 years old and um i've never once seen like a ball of cotton just laying in the in the middle of the forest what say you wait 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 did you you say cotton lasts 100 years you you mean like material made out of cotton or just raw cotton oh shoot not wool yeah i got that all wrong wow cotton sheep cotton sheep (laughs) yeah if you plant them, God, right, if you I plant was... them right, they grow really well. Uh, I wish I was editing this podcast right now. <laughs> Moving on, women's buttons are not on the right side. Prove me wrong. Well, they're they're not on the same side because women used to uh, have someone to dress them. Didn't men too, though? Men didn't use buttons. All right, so uh, let me read this. Women's buttons are sewn onto the left side of the garment. The reason for this is that buttons were very expensive and only wealthy women with domestic help could afford them. But wouldn't that be true for men also? Uh, I don't know. I'm not familiar with manservants. Fair enough. I got one more. Uh, Sewing was one of the first skills Homo sapiens learnt. It actually says learnt. It's not my vernacular. According to who? I don't know if that's true. According to who? Um, a random website on the internet. Like a random website was around when the first skill was learned. I don't. I don't buy that for a second. <laughs> is it? Is it literally like rando.com? Is that where you got it from? I don't know. Could be. Shortly followed by web development. <laughs> let me let me explain to you two how deep my research goes. Okay. I went to the Google. I typed in sewing fun facts. I clicked on the very first link. And that's what I'm reading to you. All right. And you're and you're working up to maybe two first couple links? Yes. Uh, technically, it wasn't an ad, so <laughs> I have that going for me. Uh, 
but in order to be number one on Google, you must be telling the truth. So that's my science, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it's infallible, infallible. Tanda, did you do any research on sewing? <laughs> I, I yeah, I did some research, and uh, you know, in the spirit of naming things, like PJ has uh, has a name for all of his bargain hunting trips, and so I'm calling this. Uh, this uh, out-of-work actors, trolls, and the guy who patented everything all at once. Okay. And it and it's a little bit of uh, history about inventors of sewing machines, which I found interesting, and so I kind of went off and researched that. But the first sewing machine, um, or credit for the first sewing machine in 1790, was Thomas Saint. And it was kind of overlooked for like 83 years because the patent was classed as wearing apparel. Now, why would a patent on a sewing machine be, be classed as wearing apparel? Well, it might be that his patent was titled An Entire New Method of Making and Completing Shoes, Boots, Splatter Dashes, Clogs, and Other Articles by Means of Tools and Machines Also Invented by Me for That Purpose and of Certain Compositions of the nature of Japan or varnish, which will be very advantageous in many useful applicants. This was the title? This is the title of the patent. So basically, you know, I mean, today it's really hard to like get all your claims into a patent. Apparently in 1790, you could just, you know, like patent everything you were thinking of all at once from varnishes and Japaning to, uh, to sewing machines and shoemaking. This guy could not survive on Twitter. So basically... This guy is the reason that patents are now so difficult. Right. He ruined it for everybody else. And then there was a Walter Hunt. And this is this is what I found interesting because somewhere between 1832 and 1834, he produced a sewing machine that made the lock stitch. And it was the first time an inventor had attempted to not reproduce the hand stitch. So he was thinking of how could I attach these two pieces of material together with thread and not just try to replicate what we do by hand, which is often, you know, a real eureka moment in invention where you say, let's, let's not try to do it the way we do it by hand. Let's figure out something else. That's a huge leap in, in thought process right there. Right. That's pretty incredible. And then, and so all of this took place really in a relatively short period of time, like 1830 to the late 1880s. And, and a lot of it has stood the test of time and is very much the sewing machines we use today. So Bartholomew Thimonier was the first man to have put a sewing machine into practical operation. And he was a French tailor in the early 19th century. And he noticed that a lot of people in his village did this type of embroidery using a needle with a small hook, like forming a chain stitch, kind of like crocheting. And he made a machine which produced a chain stitch and... Uh, by 1840, he had a shop in Paris with 80 machines in use sewing uniforms for the French army. But alas, tailors were fearful of the new machines as a threat to their jobs, and a mob destroyed the factory and the machines. Naturally. That's awesome. Yeah. And then uh, Elias Howe, who I'm classifying as a patent troll, although I'm sure his intentions and, and the reality were that he, you know, he really was a serious inventor as opposed to a modern-day patent troll who's just trying to make money off of, off of patents that they never intend to make. He received a patent for a machine in 1846, and he was unsuccessful in selling the machine. However, he traveled to England to try there and met the same lack of success. And so 
you know, that was kind of where he was at in 1846. He had this patent for this machine that he couldn't sell. Meanwhile, um, Isaac Merritt Singer, who aspired to be an actor and his first love was the theater, found that he couldn't really have much financial success in acting. And so he turned to inventing. And the first thing he invented was a mechanical excavator. And then he made a typecasting machine for book printing and displayed it in a steam-powered workshop run by an Orson Phelps who designed sewing machines. And Phelps customers kept returning the machines because of faulty design. And Singer examined the machines and suggested improvements. And that was kind of the beginning of Singer's involvement with sewing. And with Phelps' encouragement, he started devoting his energies to sewing machine um, invention and patented his first rigid arm sewing machine in 1951. And he, he, Singer did a lot of other things like demonstrating machines, having them on display, mass marketing, um, providing service along with sales. So he was a marketing guru as well. You left out the part about when he was an actor, he actually uh, had messed around with pretty much every woman he ever met, and he's got like 18 illegitimate children. Oh, well, he probably needed sewing machines just to keep up with making clothes. You think, right? Yeah. Uh, well, if he kept up with all the children. And then uh, there was a, a Benjamin Wilson entered into a partnership with uh, Nathan Wheeler and produced their first machine in 1851. And in 1952, they organized the Wheeler and Wilson Sewing Machine Company, which at the time was the largest factory of its kind in the world, making 600 machines a day. So that was pretty impressive for uh, mid to late 1800s. And, uh, and, and now we get back to Howe who, after not being able to sell his machine in England, returned to the United States and found that sewing machines had become quite popular, and many of them utilized some or all of his patents. He won several lawsuits, compelling competitors to pay him for each machine they sold in 1856. He formed a combination with the companies of Singer, Wheeler, and Wilson, and Grove and Baker, whereby he received $5 for each machine sold in the U.S., and $1 for each machine exported. He earned over $2 million before his patent expired in 1867. So he did, uh, he did quite well, having never made a machine based on his patent. Very lucky guy. And yeah. uh, Isaac Singer happened to um, also die a multimillionaire on uh, July 23, 1875, in uh, Torquay, Devon, England. So... I don't know how many multimillionaires there were in 1875, but that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, certainly a lot of these early industrialists uh, um, did really well. And another interesting one was Helen Blanchard, who was the inventor of the zigzag machine. And she held 28 patents, 22 of them dealing with sewing machines. And her family was uh, a, had a wealthy uh, ship owner, and they were wealthy ship owners, but they lost everything in the Panic of 1866. And to the point she had to borrow money for her first patent fee. But through her patent income and the profits from her sewing machines, um, she was able to buy back all of the family homestead and, and properties that they had lost. So that was an interesting story. A lot of uh, a lot of interest, a lot of people. Yeah, so I thought that was, it was really interesting. I like uh, I, I like following the trails of of historic inventors and inventions. 
Uh, I'd also like to point out that uh, when Singer had his factory and he was manufacturing the other things that he had invented, uh, that shortly stopped when his factory exploded. <laughs> so mm. he uh, apparently best safety practices. Uh, OSHA wasn't around back then to uh, make sure everybody was, you know, not smoking on the job next to the dynamite or whatever happened. I don't know. But I did tons of research, you know, just like you did, Tand, on where sewing machines came from and everything. And then I lucked into my favorite topic, sewing superstitions. <laughs> oh, God. If there are scissors, I'm turning this off and I'm walking There away. are scissors, and not only are there oh, scissors. Oh, but we've already covered scissor superstitions. Yeah, but clearly there are more scissor superstitions <laughs> than what I had in the episode for cutting. There are more. I did. I was looking. I'm like, I'm not going to read ones of their repeats. There was literally two for scissors that I had to delete. All the rest of them, brand new. I'm like, okay, this this is it. Tom, sidebar. Yeah, yeah. Can we tell him to pick his favorite one I, and just go with that? No, I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, I, like this whole sewing episode was seemed so out of the blue. It was like, why does PJ want to right. talk about sewing? And this and now why. I get it. He wanted to fit in it's sewing superstitions. Yeah, it's a setup. Yeah, it it's was a just setup. it was right. a roundabout way for him to sneak in a whole we, superstition episode again. All right, how do we derail him and and steer this conversation in a different? Direction? I don't know that we can. He's coming back. We just we're just going to have to run. With I think him. we're just going to have to let him do. Oh yeah, okay. All right, guys, are you ready? Yeah. Um, I'm ready. Let me uh, let me go get some water. Or yep, something. I'm all set. Oh God, Tom's gone again. All right, so I'm going to start without him. So, the first thing I found is if you're pinned to your slip during a fitting, you'll enjoy wearing the dress. Uh, That is, to me, a little odd. Does that mean it's pinned to your skin or to some other pair of clothes? I don't know, but uh, I thought that was a weird superstition. I would think it just means your dress is pinned to your slip. But okay. It's yeah. odd. It's odd that it says if you're pinned to your slip. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, the next one is if you drop a needle or a pin and it lands eye or head up, you'll have good luck. If it lands point up, you're destined for tragedy. If that's true, I'm surprised that there wasn't like mass, you know, exodus of seamstresses throughout the. <laughs> how how are they not all dead? You know. <laughs> And if it and if it lands on its side, then you've you've finally taken that shag carpet out of your sewing room and, and updated to something more modern. <laughs> oh my God! Can you imagine a whole shag carpet full of pins and needles? That'd be like a death trap. Yes, it's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, the next one is if you borrow pins, never return them to avoid catastrophe. No explanation. That's that's it. That's the just steal pins. That's <laughs> steal anybody's pins that you can. Don't read superstitions about stealing. If you drop a pair of scissors on the floor, it's bad luck unless you step on them before picking them up. If the scissors fall with the points down, it means the dressmaker will receive more work. Oh. So so you could just kind of drop scissors point down in hopes of... That's not like a marketing scheme. I'm pretty sure that 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 exact same thing in the other episode was you got married or something, didn't it? <laughs> that what I, no, I think your marriage fails. I think 
if someone drops scissors at a wedding, at you're your basically wedding. dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate, I hate that I remember that. No, no, you should. At the wedding, if you drop the scissors, the groom would become impotent. That's that's what it was. Um, anyway, uh, okay, so there's that one. Uh, then there is. Oh well, this uh, this one was from the other one. If you if scissors stick on the floor, only one point. It's a sign of death. That I think that one we covered. If your scissor, if you drop scissors on a Sunday, expect a strange visitor. On Sunday or like any time in the future? N- no. If you drop scissors on a Sunday, expect a strange visitor. That that sounds like I don't know. It sounds like you're going to get your period early or something. I don't know why. <laughs> That's a weird thing. You're going to get a strange visitor. All right, I have a, I have a hypothetical. If it's like 11.59 p.m. and you drop scissors, will the stranger show up in time? No, you get gremlins. Does it say that? <laughs> this is a problem. No. The, the stranger <laughs> will show up at 15 till, being, being, being a really strange visitor from like time travel. Ooh, <gasps> but yeah, something. It's Doctor Who. He shows up at your door. That'd be cool. I'm gonna drop scissors tonight. The previous Sunday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. The next one is a shirt sewn during the dark of the moon will creep up and out of the wearer's trousers. <laughs> <laughs> to avoid this problem, put sugar in your shoes. <laughs> God. Then we have an ant problem. There you have it. I wonder where these things start. That because is... all the ants on your shirt are heading down toward your shoes, and that keeps your shirt tucked in. That's got to be it. Yeah. Step in the dirt, you'll tear your father's shirt. It seems like we should have known that as kids. I don't know. That's that's a. It's like you know. I mean, I recall step on a crack, break your mother's back. Right. Well, this was the one for your dad. Why didn't we ever learn that one? I don't know. It seems thoughtless. Oh, I know. How do you keep a kid from standing, stepping in the dirt? That's that's the you know, these all these fathers must have had like the ragged. They must all look like Fred Flintstone by the time you know they got to work. It's, the kids going to school. Hmm. All right. So a British tailor carries a thimble in his pocket for good luck. That's that's not bad. If a sewer dies before finishing a garment, the garment should be cut up, burned, and never allowed to be worn. Uh, I guess uh, otherwise you'd be haunted. Uh, I don't know. What is that signal, Tom? How many more you got? I got a lot. (laughs) I got a lot. All right. You're going to have to suffer through them. PJ, real quick, because I know that you have like 40 to 60 more of these, can you sum it up in like two or three more? No. Okay. (laughs) Continue. If you accidentally put a garment on wrong side out or backwards, it will protect you from getting lost. To avoid bad luck, don't correct this error on the same day unless you say bread and butter before reversing the garment. <laughs> that seems like a really easy out. I, For some reason, I, I'm immediately thought of like a little girl lost in the woods and she's carrying her jacket and then puts it on inside out the wrong way. 
I'm just I'm just thinking more more along the lines of breadcrumbs, you know, where you just if if you want to find your way back, you just you just start listening and you you follow the trail of laughing people that you've passed during the day back to where you started. Probably. Yeah. All you have to do is write the words was it bread and butter on the inside of everything you own. No, no, no. You have to say bread and butter before you reverse it. I understand, but if you put something on inside out, you will then see the label bread and butter and go, oh, I need to reverse my cert, but I have to say bread and butter first. That's a good idea, Tom. Problem solved. You should start a it's campaign. A to... Superstition reminder shirt. We should sell t-shirts that are blank, but on the inside, they say bread and butter. Uh, we, we, you're going to have to talk to Johnson's about that, Tom. Yeah, all right. All right. The next one says, never leave a sewing machine open during a lightning storm or lightning will strike the house. That is one powerful sewing machine. That's a, I don't know, maybe Ben Franklin? It is bad luck to sew clothing while someone is wearing it unless the person <laughs> in the clothes holds a thread in their mouth. What? Yeah, I got nothing either. Always sew a pillowcase on New Year's Eve to hold all of your troubles. Never heard that before. No one has, PJ. Yeah. No one has. Well, I mean, you might have heard some. <laughs> Never leave sewing undone on New Year's or it will stay that way for the next year. Well, that's just laziness. That's all that is. Never sew on Sunday because you will have to rip out all of those stitches when you get to heaven. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Apparently God doesn't like you sewing on Sunday. Um, there is harm in sewing on Sunday if you do not use a thimble. That, that's true. There's, there's, a, there's harm there's in sewing harm on Monday. any day if you don't use a thimble. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. pretty much every day of the week, I think. Um, these people were very weird. You will cut off your fortune if you use scissors on New Year's Day. It's another scissors one. It's like these things are just coming out of the woodwork. A bride must sew a swan's feather into her husband's pillow to ensure fidelity. What what do swans have to do with a guy fooling around on his wife? I don't know, I don't, I, but I don't want to find out. I, I think that one's related to the whole, uh, you know, if you drop scissors at a at a wedding, it can result in the groom's impotence. I don't okay. know who invited the urologist to the wedding anyway. This is a, this is a weird one. Don't wash clothes on New Year's Day, or someone in your family will pass away. So, I, I don't know. I guess everybody's just got to be stinky. To upset a box of pins foretells a surprise as long as some of them are left in the box. That's, that's some Rain Man stuff right there, i got to tell you. If you mend your apron or dress while you are wearing it, someone will lie about you. Tom, you're the only one here with an apron, so I, I hate to tell you, buddy. but uh, uh, That's a capron? It's different. Oh, then you're, you're, you're straight out. Don't worry about it. All right, we've only got 47 more to go. <laughs> I don't know how many they are. They just keep going. <clears throat> White sewing on a garment. <laughs> He's going to keep going. 
I, I found a whole bunch. You know, every single week I search for superstitions for the subject, Listen. and I don't find anything. I find this, and it's, it's— You remember that day that, that we started a podcast, and then PJ read the web, the entire web? <laughs> the entire internet. <laughs> White sewing on a garment, should you sew it into your dress by mistake— as many stitches as you take, so many lies will be told about you. There's a lot of stuff having to do with sewing and lies. Must have been a lot of uh, gossipers or something. If you break a needle... And for the final one... N- no. <laughs> if you break a needle while making a dress, you will live to wear it out. If you tear a hole in a new dress the first time wearing it, you will have a new one before that one is worn out. That just is dumb. All right, I'm gonna start Did you skipping. Proofread these? I'm gonna start skipping some of these. Hold on. He hasn't. He didn't read these ahead of time. I did, but I didn't take out the bad ones. Oh, here's another scissors ones. <laughs> you didn't take out any of them. <laughs> no, no. Listen to this. Breaking one blade of a pair of scissors is an omen of quarrels and discord. If both blades break at once, a calamity is about is is to be feared. I would say that's true. That's statistically. I mean, if you break both blades of a pair of scissors at the same time. Something is already going bad. Using them normally, then yeah, yeah, something's gone south. All right. There's five more. I'm just going to pick one. (gasps) Personal growth. Okay. This is the goodie. In Scotland, it was once believed that a witch could conjure a strong wind by dipping a cloth in water and whacking it against the stone three times. And the reason I love that one is because it has nothing to do with sewing. (laughs) (laughs) It was on the same list. Thank you for joining the Superstition News Hour with PJ Galati. It's time to sell a story. Let me tell you one. All right. The winter drought continues. You know what? I think the winter drought is, we talked about this over text message this week. It is coupled with Facebook Marketplace changing everything for the worse. Yes. Like you can't search. It's. I found out how to do it, but you basically can't search local easily and your regular feed is not local. They changed so it the, back. So, they changed it back on my end. But yeah, there was five days where I couldn't get anything. No, dude. I, I believe you, but not on my end. If I go to Marketplace, I used to be able to scroll through and everything was from like right. 12 miles around me. Right. And now nothing is unless I search for one particular phrase and then go into the settings to like change it to local only. Tom? It's driving me nuts and I haven't been buying anything. Tom, you, yeah. you, you need to reset your vpn so it doesn't look like you're in lithuania anymore after you finish surfing the net for things you shouldn't be looking at you've got to remember to change it back to your local i'll tell you what it was doing to me it was giving me everything that i never looked for like in my marketplace the i look for everything as newly listed items because that stuff doesn't get listed into category groups until after it's been up for a while and that was gone And then all the tool listings were gone. And it kept giving me stuff like baby clothes, women's clothes, automobiles, 
lawn and garden. And I'm like, I don't, I've never looked for any of this stuff. And it's all, <laughs> all right. it was showing. Man, Google, yep. man, Google, Google is really good. Because it noticed that PJ was looking up a whole bunch of sewing stuff all week long. This was before that. What drives me nuts <laughs> is I, I looked up tractors the other day. I always wanted like a farmall tractor from whenever. Mm-hmm. I don't know when they're from. And now I get all these tractors in my feed, but they're from all over the country. I'm like, who's shipping this stuff? You got to drive it back. It's going to take you four years to get there. Drive me nuts. But the Lithuanian tip. Thank you, because I just it was full of beetroot soup and fried curd cakes, and I didn't understand why. Yeah, yeah. I just googled Lithuanian food so I could sound topical. I did. I did find like two things that were really good, but they were they were pricey. Um, one was a Unidrill, a Brockwell Unidrill, which I've only ever seen two listed. I've never seen one in person. Aren't all drills Unidrills? No. So a Unidrill is think of like a benchtop drill. But where the column, where it's attached to the column, it has a, almost like a J hanger, like something that comes out and then swings forward like an L. And then there's a secondary attachment and the whole, yeah, Tom's face just dropped. Yeah. They are awesome. These things allow you to move the drill head all over the entire base. You could drill anywhere. And not only that, but the- I have never seen this. uh, They're awesome. They also- tilt uh the entire drill head in an angle so you can make angle drill uh drilling angle drilling i don't know but anyway uh, they're super rare they're like i've only uh, and the i didn't even find this one uh ben makes kc found it where he lives and he had sent me the posting uh the other one that i had seen was in new york but this one was 450 dollars, and i mean totally worth it but the way out of my price range and uh and that's yeah that's, that'd be a tough buy but that is cool plus if you look at the base that that thing is sitting on that's probably like an inch and a half thick cast iron plate that's got to weigh well over 150 pounds just the base you you know what i really like about this is that so for those can't see it um the drill is on a column that you can raise and lower whereas almost every other drill press the table raises and lowers and that is very nice. Yeah, it's a sweet setup. So there was that. And then I found a guy. I was I was engaging him. I thought I might be able to get a deal. There was a guy that had a Rockwell Delta drill press that looked like it was um, a DP500. However, it had the variable speed um, control at the top. You know, that, that bar with the two ball ends that you could turn so you could change the speed and he wanted 200 bucks and I, and but he said that there was a little bit of wobble um at the chuck head and so i said how much wobble and he's like i'll send you a video so you could see and then he took the listing down so i was like oh, okay well I guess i'm not getting that so we're back to selling a story and this is a short one uh back in uh, december 21st of uh, 2019, I had gotten at an auction a brand, I want to say brand new, but it was like 99% new Craftsman Jack Plane from 1951 in the box with the instruction manual. It was near mint condition. And uh, at this auction, there was plenty of other hand planes, but for some reason, nobody wanted this, and I got it for $10. And I was like, I snatched it right up. I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with you people. 
and I was doing a story about it back then, and somebody messaged me and offered me 175 bucks for it. And that's exactly where it went. I'm like, there you go, take it. And that's it. That's my story. It's like, I, if you find something that is new old stock, not even something that's rare. I mean, this was rare because it was also a craftsman professional jack plane, which was professional or industrial, commercial. Those are all the better quality of craftsman tools. So I have seen other um, models that are just regular craftsmen. So this was nice. And I mean, it was virtually untouched. I didn't heard a lot of stories in my day, but I never heard one like that before. All right, Tanda, what's your personal history with sewing? I think like a lot of people I had access to or was exposed to sewing as a child just because we had a sewing machine and it was used for mending things and hemming clothes and it was just uh, something that was always around and and you know the the entry barrier was pretty low it's the sort of thing that uh, a parent would give you a few pieces of scrap material and let you try your hand at it without fear of you know anything blowing up or you getting caught in it and injuring yourself and so um you know i i started out uh, we had an old singer sewing machine that was my mother's and i remember sewing things just kind of playing just sewing things together but then some of the first things that i actually sewed with intention were and this is probably kind of how i use sewing now they weren't really garments i sewed um these i call them flippy flyers i don't know I think that might have been a brand name, but basically we had a bunch of old windbreaker material and I sewed a hem around the outside with, initially it was like little bits of like um, chain necklaces, like old chain necklaces, but then I discovered curtain weights um, and you could sew those in the hem around this round piece of nylon and then throw it like a Frisbee, but you could fold it up into a little tiny pouch and put it in your pocket, take it to school or whatever, and then at recess you could you could take it out and play frisbee with it. So it was like a compact, flexible frisbee. I've seen those before. Um, not a, well, I've seen a combination. I've seen the things that look like donuts that you can throw. But when my dad had his T-shirt company, one of the things we used to make were I don't know exactly what they were called, but they were frisbees. They were material frisbees, like what you're talking about. Uh, it had, uh, you know, like the beading that goes around the outside of a cushion for like furniture. It had mm -hmm. that going around, but it was filled with BBs. Yeah. And then in the middle was material. It was solid material. And then you could silk screen on the material to put like a, a hat logo on there. And, uh, and Yeah, those are, those are curtain weights. You sew them in the bottom of curtains to make the curtains hang straight. But the material with the little BBs is a, is a product you can buy for for making curtains. Mm -hmm. So we sell those. And that's what I, that's what I put in the outside. Yeah. So you made that yourself. Yeah. And it was, it was something that I took to school and then I had people asking me if I could make more of them and, and you know, there were, so it was kind of my first venture into being an entrepreneur, except, uh, you know, you only have a limited number of, of old windbreakers around that your parents will allow you to use. So it was kind of a short lived, uh, um, a short lived venture, but, uh, 
And then the next thing I remember making, and I made juggling bags out of, uh, and I think I may have mentioned that either on the podcast or in a recent story. Um, I think it was in a recent Instagram conversation where I was, I was juggling. I made juggling bags or similar juggling bags out of old jeans. And these particular juggling bags I made out of these, uh, these old jeans that had the backs worn out of them that I found in the sewing room and I made a bunch of juggling bags. And then I found out that my stepmom had agreed to him pants for one of her friend's husbands <laughs> who didn't sew. And I had made juggling bags out of all of these pants that he had like walked the back out of, but they were like these favorite old jeans of his that she was going to him for him. And I had, I had turned them into juggling bags. So it's one of those things that's really funny now, not, not so much at the time that it happened. So that was, uh, that was another thing that I made. And then the, and then one of the sillier things, and this is like, you know, your parents really love you when you make something for them and they like wear it out in public, even though it's ridiculous. <laughs> so my, my dad dipped snuff. He, 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 you know, chewed skull, um, during this period of, of my life and his life. And so I made him this little pouch for his belt out of denim and yellow. He, he liked the color yellow. So I had yellow piping running around the outsides of this denim pouch that he could carry his, uh, his snuff in or his chewing tobacco in. And he wore that thing until it wore out. And uh, so I, I knew he loved me because he wore this silly denim, denim pouch with yellow piping around it like it, was, uh, like it was the classiest thing in the world. That's great. How old were you when you made that? I was probably, oh, I don't know, 13, 12 or 13, 14 years old, maybe, uh, you know. Yeah, I was. I was not. I was not really, really young. I wasn't like six or seven years old. I was just kind of on this sewing binge, and I'd been making, you know, juggling bags and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Turns out he was just colorblind. Didn't know it was yellow. Yeah, or or he genuinely, uh, he genuinely liked it. We'll never know. We'll never know. Tom, want to tell us about your personal history with sewing? Yes, I think it was. F it was fourth or fifth grade. We took home economics. I feel like that might be an offensive term these days for some reason, but home ec was with Mrs. Hines and we had a project that we had to do for the year amongst a bunch of other stuff, but a, a sewing project. And we all got this catalog that we got to pick something out of and buy from. And pretty much everyone in my town for probably 20 years picked, uh, at least the guys picked a football which was probably four times the size of a regular football, maybe two feet long, maybe, yeah, something like that. Um, and then, like, I think there was a pillow also that went with it. And you got to pick, like, the color of the football. So I picked, like, blue and gold because for whatever reason I liked Michigan at the time, which I didn't even know where Michigan was, but I liked the colors. And I did that, and I, I'm pretty sure that pillow's gone. I really hope it is because that'd be gross. But we had that pillow a long time, and it was a good pillow. Made the whole thing. Fast forward 25-ish years, and I haven't done any sewing since. That Never. And it just hasn't happened. But I'm three houses down at a garage sale from where I live now, and uh, Mrs. Hines is there. <laughs> she lives five houses away from me, and her friends live three houses away from me. <laughs> So that was a cool re reuniting and, uh, I, and it was like a month after I had just picked up 
this um, old Singer sewing machine from Derek from Malden. Uh, and I said, oh, I just got a sewing machine. I want to, like, start doing some stuff. And she was happy to hear that. And I was like, I, you know, I, I remember so much, but I, I have to relearn a lot. So it was just a cool connection. And um, so anyways, let me take you back one more time. It was a Monday. It was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I sewed. For the first time in 25-something years. And who says Tom doesn't prepare for the shows? <laughs> <laughs> I had to go to Joanne Fabrics. I had to ask the lady for material to cover my tools in my workshop. And I was like, is vinyl the best option? And I had to go through this whole thing. I had to buy machine oil. I had to... Uh, it was it was, it was was a whole to-do. And I did it. And I sewed... What is the non-plural version of sewing? Because that's what I really did. I, I did like four stitches and, and called it quits. Sewed. I still think that's plural. So? Plural. Sigh? I think it's sigh. I think you're right. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm sighing. <laughs> I, took, I took a random piece of uh, felt that I had laying around and I folded it in half and I ran it through the machine and it worked. Not well, but it worked, and and I need to tackle it and learn more. But I finally got the machine working well enough that I can make adjustments. But I'm super excited about my new skill that that I'm going to learn. We'll, we'll be watching you, Tom, to see exactly what you do with this sewing machine. Should be fun. So I started very young. Um, I want to say it was probably around five or six, somewhere around there. And I had... As a little kid, I had, uh, you know, stuffed animals just like anybody else. I, I remember I had this one bunny that was white and yellow, which now that I think about it is kind of a weird color combination for a bunny rabbit. But the bunny rabbit was, it, it was sewn basically like a teddy bear. Like it, 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 if you imagine a, a regular teddy bear body, but like with a bunny head, that's what it looked like. So it looked like a little person. And for some reason... I felt bad that the bunny didn't have any clothes. So I was telling my mom, like, the, the bunny needs clothes. He's naked. And so she gave me the basics on how to sew so that I could make him a purple jumper. <laughs> that's what he got. And I don't know. I guess that was like the only scrap material she had was this purple material. But it was like a light violet color. I remember it very clearly for some reason with my terrible memory. But yeah, that was the first thing I ever sewed was this little purple jumper for this white and yellow bunny. And in all reality, it's probably in a box somewhere in the attic still wearing the purple jumper. I don't I don't think it was, it was thrown out. But I do remember vaguely sometime in school, like elementary school or high school or somewhere, there was something having to do with sewing and a pattern. And I can't remember what I made. I want to say it was like, like a bag, like a kind of like a shoulder bag. I think that was like the simplest thing, but I really can't recall because my memory is shot. The only thing I do remember in my adult life sewing on a machine was I got big into bonsai. And when you do bonsai trees, there's a lot of little tools, specialty tools that go along with it. And I didn't feel for some reason that putting them in a toolbox was the way to go. I wanted a roll. 
And I had very specific tools and the role, in my opinion, was the way to go. Like you custom made it to hold all the tools for the thing you needed. So I got, um, it was like, it was not blue denim, but it was like a some type of a blue canvas. Uh, and I think I got it like Joanne fabric or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I, all I did was I, I didn't, I didn't measure anything. I just took the canvas, laid it out, put all the tools like in a row, like I made two rows, top and bottom. And I just laid out like how big it needed to be. And then however, however long it was, was just, that's how long it was. And then I made, um, at one end, I made like a cushion, like a, almost like a couch cushion, like that would go against the arm. And that was what it rolled up against. I had uh, put in like little flaps to hold the tools in the middle. And then I sewed um, on the edges, uh, very large um, straight flaps that folded inward to cover the tools. And then I rolled the whole thing up. And then I made a handle for it using a wooden dowel that I covered with uh, some sort of, it wasn't cotton, but it was some sort of fluffy something to give it a little bit of a cushion. And then I sewed all that together and sewed that on. And then the whole thing was kind of enclosed with some, um, I can't remember what the thing is called. It's like a stretchy material. It's, it's like a strap, but it stretches. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got elastic. some- Elastic. What's that? Elastic. Some, it was it was elastic, but it was it was like one inch wide elastic. It wasn't mm -hmm. the the real thin kind. This was heavy duty. And then I had the uh, the clasps that um, put like one goes inside the other, and then it snaps out, and it's got the two two parts you pinch to release. Can't remember what those things are called, but they're very very common. You see them on backpacks all the time. So I got two of those that happened to be perchance the exact same tone of blue as the fabric I was using. So, and that was it. That was the last thing I sewed. I still have it. It's it's downstairs in the dungeon with all my bonsai supplies. And uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, I've, I've gone back and forth. I kind of get on kicks where I drag out this. It seems like if you drag out the sewing machine, you kind of set up a place for it and you have a place to sew. Then you, at least with me, and I think it's the same with a lot of tools, then you kind of become inspired because you see it and you you think of all the things that you were thinking about sewing or um, or thinking about using that particular tool for. And so I like go through little periods where I sew a bunch of stuff. I know I, I discovered that uh, for small stuff, my laser is great for cutting polyester. So if you're making little pouches and pockets and um, or doing uh, logos for hats or things like that, that the laser will cut and seal polyester because it's basically plastic anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and it makes for really quick and, and clean cutting of material. And then I discovered that imitation suede, which is also a polyester but looks like suede, um, laser marks really well. So I kind of got on a kick of making um, some bags and pouches and, and hats and stuff that had uh, imitation suede logos and decoration on them. Yeah, most of what I would consider sewing that I do nowadays is actually leather work. That's, that's you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of sewing, but more stitching than anything else. I got that hybrid shoe patcher, you know, that Chinese shoe patcher, and that's kind of a kind of an in-between. I mean, it's for sewing heavy things like, like leather, but not so much that you would use it for um, something you would hand stitch, like really thick leather. 
I have been on the lookout for some time now for an industrial sewing machine that would do leather. Used, of course. Tom has one. He's only used it once and yesterday. <clears throat> yeah, it's got less than 12 stitches on it. Is that Singer sewing machine considered industrial? Uh, yes. Uh, it has a motor with a clutch versus a like potentiometer motor. I don't know what you would call it. So the motor runs at full speed all the time, and the pedal engages a clutch, which can regulate your speed. It goes very fast. Like, chew your arm off fast if you're not paying attention. Uh, I've also, I found a YouTube channel, I don't remember the name of it, but he uses it for um, uh, car upholstery, and he even tells you how to set up the machine for car upholstery. So, I think there's a lot of, tell me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of times in sewing where you have to go, even though you're working with like a single layer of material, you have to go through three or four layers of material. Is that sound like a common occurrence yep right makes sense yeah i mean well you almost always when you're when you're putting two pieces together you almost always have them folded over where you're going through multiple layers and if you're doing something okay. heavy like a like upholstery fabric then when you go through two or three layers it adds up pretty quick and becomes difficult yeah well he uses it for leather also it seems like upholstery leather i don't know if it's any different seems rather thin for I don't know anything about leather, but, <clears throat> um, so it can do a lot of that stuff. Uh, I think needle size or gauge is important in that situation, but it can do it, I believe. Apparently I need to get an old singer then. I didn't realize they were considered industrial, or maybe I, I need an industrial singer. It may be in, in my area, but I can almost always go out on on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist and find industrial machines for sale. I don't, I don't, you know, I haven't, haven't really purchased one or, or know enough about them to know the quality. But when I was looking, I became really interested in doing embroidery, machine embroidery. And, uh, and so I would always be looking for industrial sewing machines to find embroidery machines. And uh, I would see them for sale all the time you know, the, the big long arm industrial sewing machines. So I think they're available. At least they are here. It seems like there's a lot of industrial stuff around where you live, Tanda. I notice you get a lot of industrial type deals down there. It's, it's not like rust belt industrial. It's like technical industrial, like instrumentation and, and stuff like that more so, I think. But uh, yeah, I ended up buying a, not a, not an old, but a fairly new persona embroidery machine which is uh, a single needle embroidery machine so it's kind of the cnc of sewing to do embroidery with a machine there was i remember back in the day when those machines first started being made available sort of semi-residentially they mm -hmm. were super expensive and very finicky yeah, I have some friends who own an embroidery shop, and they had Melco machines, which were probably a little bigger than the—I mean, they certainly—the same company made personal ones, but they were always battling to keep them running and, and tuned up and working correctly. Right up our alley. So, so, Tom, now you need to get an embroidery machine. Done. I'm on it. Give me a minute. I had a lot of fun with mine. It's kind of uh, collecting dust at the moment because it's in an odd spot in the shop that's uh, not as accessible. But uh, 
it, it, it was a lot of fun. And that particular machine, they had some kind of agreement with Disney. So um, they had licensed all the Disney princesses and Mickey Mouse and Goofy and everything. And they, those were already stored in the machine or you were free to use them even on things that you were you were selling. So that was kind of an interesting aspect of it. But I did a few maker license plates for a couple people and uh, um, and, and I think even inspired a few of them to start uh, doing embroidery uh, on their own. So that's cool. So we're, we're going to see some Disney hardware at Johnson's? Yeah, could be. Well, sucky darn, I think it's time for one of them old-timey commercial energy lubes and stuff. Hello, this is Chet down at Johnson's Hardware. Now, I know you think of us as a big tool company down here, but we're sensitive to all kinds of makers out there. We know that you seamstresses and tailors have your hands full a lot of the time with difficult projects. Sometimes the thimbles that you're using just aren't good enough. Those standard thimbles fall off your fingers. Sometimes you can punch a needle straight through. Well, we have the solution for you. The thimble mitten. That's right. If those tiny thimbles are no longer good enough for you, the thimble mitten is your answer. All you have to do is shove your entire hand into the thimble mitten, and it will protect you from any sharp, pointy objects you use while sewing, including needles, pins, scissors, very sharp rocks, and children that have not clipped their nails. The thimble mitten has been available for the last 20 minutes. If you would like your thimble mitten, please contact us at patreon.com forward slash makerskills. What the heck, nabbit? I need to get me one of them. Anyone know what street Patreon is on? I need to go. All right, it's time for crossbreeding. Tom, what skill goes well with sewing? Hmm. I'm going to say design. If only you could say design, but you can't. All right, I'm going to say pattern making. Is that a skill? Pattern making? I think pattern making is a skill. Yeah, I agree. That's a skill. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend that reached out to me after I did some Instagram stories about me sewing. And he's like, I've always wanted to be like a tailor or learn that skill. And I was like, dude, just get a machine and go buy some patterns. Or There's probably free patterns. But it's the patterns that kind of make the whole thing happen, right? It's, it's knowing what size to make things and what shape to make something because it's like you know sewing starts with two dimensions and then is is not folded but sewn together into a three-dimensional thing that's my that's my take on it i have always wanted one of those adjustable uh seamstress um mannequins where you could adjust like the size of the Mm -hmm. chest and the waist yeah because dress form a dress form yeah i Mm -hmm. i don't like patterns for when i sew things I want to be able to just take the cloth, put it on the thing that I want it on, like a person, but in this case, a, a sewing form, and just arrange it that way. That to me is, I don't know why, I don't know why I don't like patterns, but I prefer to just see it and move the, the cloth around like the way that it's going to be. That's, I don't know, I, there's probably some reason behind that, but I don't know what it is. Well, I think that's how most patterns start. I mean, if you just go by a pattern, I think that's probably the, the likely way that it started. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that uh, repair or mending go well with sewing because I think most people um, start out sewing with uh, either remaking something or, or mending something. 
and that's a good way to learn sewing. And it's also a good source of material. If there are things that are maybe beyond repair, there's often uh, resources of material and you know stockpiles of it just around your own home with things that you might be giving to Goodwill or you might be passing along that you could be using as as stock for learning to sew. I would I would hazard a guess that most likely 50% of all sewing is repair. I would think that there's probably more repair work like it's the same thing for jewelry making. If you go to any jeweler almost a guarantee probably more than 50% of the work that those jewelers do is repair work. People bring in rings that have broken or necklaces and bracelets that stuff does not last forever especially if you wear it a lot repair is a big industry hey pj what do you think uh, pairs well with sewing reading yeah because there's well, a lot of books on sewing and different ways to sew different patterns and uh if you don't know how to read that makes it difficult <laughs> that's true that's hey, true Tan- a person can Tanda, sidebar yeah T- Tanda, sidebar real quick uh, I think that answer uh, qualifies for termination, and uh, we should discuss this before getting back to PJ. But that was that was pretty much the lowest bar anyone could set for a for a response. I mean, design. I would have I would have let him slide if he said design again, even after he rejected mine. Yeah, yeah. But I think I agree. Reading. I mean, reading. Reading is like lowest of the low that that's true i mean like if some someone could just sit there instead of researching they could just read a page of sewing superstitions and and and, yeah. and pass that off as sewing research he didn't even say reading aloud like that would have been better that's true like, just reading to yourself you and so right? people can't even tell if you're reading you might just be page turning to yourself thank you oh there he is I mean, illiteracy is a real problem, Tom. You shouldn't make fun of people who can't read. What are you talking about? I wasn't making fun of anybody. It sure sounded like it the last time you were chuckling about it. I don't think I don't think Tom would do that. They would, uh, but but reading reading is a good 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 pairing with sewing. Yeah, great great pairing. That that's what I said. Hey, I see something shining. Let's go get it. Tom, I understand that you've got something shiny in the shop today that you just got. I like do. right before we started recording. Yes, I got it, and I believe my text message read something. Yeah, I got it. Minutes, minutes. Like I came downstairs to the basement to start my computer to start the podcast, and when I started my computer, I my email popped up and said that UPS had delivered something. So. I really wanted to bail on you guys tonight and next week and maybe the week after that. But I got a box of metal. That's it. I got a box of metal. Like World War II medals? Like like for bravery and stuff? Uh, no. Nope. I mean, they could be, but you'd have to make them out of my box of metal. It's, it's uh, uh, I don't want to call it scrap metal because like scrap wood is like, little pieces that you have offcuts, but it is little pieces of metal and it's stock. It's really when a piece of metal is like only a foot long, that's still metal stock. Whereas if it was like a piece of wood, it'd be scrap wood. 
Do you agree? I don't know. Do I have to agree? It kind of kind of depends on the scale. I think offcuts are are offcuts. <sighs> well, I bought a bunch of metal scrap <laughs> and uh, paid top dollar. Or small, or small, or small metal stock. Just depends on how you look at I, it. It is small metal stock. Don't make fun of my metal stock. All right. Uh, anyways, so I got it from uh, onlinemetals.com and not if sponsored. You Proto, not sponsored. And I don't recommend them, but Protobox, <laughs> if you just search Protobox, P-R-O-T-O-B-O-X, maybe one word, I don't know, on online metals, you can see they sell it in 5, 10, or 20 pound boxes usually, and, and you can pick aluminum, brass, copper. Uh, be careful if you pick brass, you probably actually picked copper, <laughs> and that's what you got, because that's kind of what happened to me. I thought I bought brass and I bought copper, which is much more expensive, by the way. So I have a question for you guys. This whole idea, I already touched on it, but when you have, I just got into machining in the last year, two years, it's a slow burn, but I need things to make things out of. I need a rack of lumber, so to speak, to make things on my lathe and my soon-to-be-working mill. So... These are a great option for that because you usually on a on in metalworking like this or machining I should say, you're usually making small things, right? Like things you could hold in two hands mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if they didn't weigh a ton. Sure. So this stuff is perfect for that, but I find that the difference between metal stock and wood stock, not the band or the 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 current. What was it? it was place a, in New York. Well, I know it's a place, but what was the concert? It was a concert. Anyways, not that, but... I think they called it Woodstock. Yeah, They did call it Woodstock. <laughs> not that kind of Woodstock. You mean the Woodstock uh, that's with Snoopy? No, not that one either. Uh, I'm confused then. Nope. This is the uh, planks of wood that have yet to be turned into something in your garage. Those are called trees, or in your Tom. shop or whatever. No, a step, step further than trees, but not quite furniture. Yeah. A forest? Yeah, rafters. <sighs> this is difficult. This is very difficult. Floor joists? No? Am I getting close? Uh, yeah, let's go with floor joists. Shelves. Shelves. Yeah, no, basically floor joists. You're right. Um, so metal, metal, there are different types of metal. And wood, there are thousands of species of wood, right? But you can use almost any species of wood to make almost anything you would make out of wood. I know there are some details and varieties in there. But with metal, you can't make certain things out of certain metals uh, and vice versa. Well, it's not recommended. Sure. Not recommended. You could make it, but it would break. Yeah, like a, like a, like a, sodium, like a sodium teapot. Probably not a good choice. Yeah, or like a lead toothbrush. I don't know how that would work, but you shouldn't do it. Yeah, it's not recommended. Right. So the, the two things are very different. Uh, the size of things are very different. So this box of metal is, um, is a huge addition to my, my capabilities. So one difference, um, you know, when you're doing woodworking, a lot of times you start with like construction lumber, you starting with two by fours or plywood. I mean, I still use that stuff a lot anyway, but there is no plywood. Maybe there is, maybe you can tell me what is like the plywood equivalent of, of metal aluminum. I think aluminum is the is the plywood of machining. Most likely, it's, yeah. It's yeah. relatively inexpensive, and it's and it machines pretty well. 
I mean, for little tiny things, brass works well, but of course it's more expensive, but aluminum cuts well. You can cut it with most woodworking tools. So if you're just breaking it down, to, to use a kind of a, more of a woodworking term, you can throw a, a metal cutting blade in a miter saw and get pieces cut down to fit on your machines. And hmm. um, so I think that uh, aluminum is the plywood of machining. That's that's interesting. I really didn't think there was a a good answer for that, and that's a pretty good answer. I bought some aluminum. I bought 10 pounds of aluminum. I also bought 10 pounds of copper, which I thought was brass when I clicked on the button, but apparently it wasn't. There's probably three times more aluminum in that 10-pound box than there is copper, which I did not consider when I was buying it. Yeah. I didn't think about the weight difference. Probably 3.17 times as much, if my, if my math serves. Well, don't tell him we... <laughs> talked about this before the show of course we don't we don't ever talk before the show it just spontaneously happens as soon as we start recording tom what that's a no one would think otherwise right you know while we're on this topic they also don't know that i do all the research for the show and i just hand you guys a, a thing to read before each show tom stop telling everybody our secrets that's not the, the, you're going against okay. the contract the union's going to write you up again i just i feel like i don't get enough credit and i'm the guy that pretends like he didn't do research it's, it's that, fine it's that, fine. that write-up today was good tom i enjoyed reading it thank you i really did i appreciate I, the yeah. feedback thank you i mean thank you know you so the way much. that you kept badgering me about reading all the the superstitions that you found that that kind of was like a dead giveaway to me but yeah yeah that was that was well written i would say well written Oh wait! It says here in the script I got to bring it back to online metals. Uh, uh, so I have also yes. brought. Uh, I've I've bought stuff from online metals, not sponsored. And the one thing that I will recommend to you is if you are interested in buying a proto box or these cutoffs and scraps, wait for a holiday because they do holiday sales and you can get a discount. So it's already inexpensive. Like by comparison, if you buy a, uh, I got a proto box, the twenty pound box of brass and i looked at some of the stuff that i got and like i got like a 12 inch uh round stock i think it was like one and a half inch uh round stock and if i was to buy that just that from online metals it would be over a hundred dollars and i think that the entire box i paid 60 bucks so and that was that was on sale i think they're normally like 75 maybe i can't remember but uh, buy them during the holidays is what i'm trying to say when they have stuff on sale so you can get it for even less online metals always has some kind of discount going if you if you look mm -hmm. or you just get on their email list if you if you're buying things and they have plastics as well then you'll get probably a discount code a week or every other week from online metals so it's it's rare that you would ever have to pay the listed price for something from online metals. Hey, I see you looking at my stuff. Go get your own, Shanny. All right. It's time for short and sweet. Tanda, you got anything you have to wrap up the show? I, w I would say that if you're into sewing, um, you should probably be following someone other than the three of us. And uh, I think that uh, Ellen is definitely uh, a good choice. Crafts with Ellen. And... Uh, uh, Patty Gilstrap might be another good one. Patty Brooklyn. Patty Brooklyn. is, uh, And so th those would be good choices if you really want to learn something about sewing and uh, and uh, and how to do it correctly. Catherine Hines is also a good seamstress, I believe. 
He's a little more advanced, but still someone that's good to learn from. Tom, do you have something that you'd like to add for short and sweet? Well, my yeah, my aunt is a seamstress, and you could follow her too. Uh, she doesn't have social media, but if you PM me, I'll give you you know her address, and that'll be fun. And if you follow her, make sure if she drops a box of pins and there are two still left in it, that you throw a pair of scissors at her, or a black cat could swallow your bobbin. Yep, I think she has a black cat actually. Had a black cat. So that's convenient. She had a black cat. Well, not anymore. True. True. All those scissors was bound to happen. PJ, anything for short and sweet? Um, I have been editing all week long. I had one one day where I was able to jump out into the shop, but I've been I basically have been editing for almost six days with a small break, and I haven't sat down in front of the computer for that long to do video editing, and. Uh, it's 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 been an experience, not a bad experience, but just it's reminding me of the work that I kind of left behind in order to be a tool peddler. Uh, however, the good news is it pays well, and I'm probably going to be getting a 3D printer soon. Oh, that's good news. Yeah. Very excited. Very excited for you. Tom looks like he's got something important to tell me. I have a follow-up to uh, I See Something Shiny. I just, I, so part of my proto box, I got this uh, about 11 inch by two inch round copper piece. And I just went on after PJ was talking about, you know, how much things cost. This piece, if it were one inch longer, story of my life, would be $158.94 before shipping and tax. That's what I'm talking about. So this, this piece is 160 bucks. Now, I mean, I don't need it for anything in particular, so its its value is suspect, but that's crazy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Maker Skills. If you should need more skill information, you can find us on Instagram at maker.skills. You can also email us at makerskillspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at PJ Galati, Son of the Junk Hunter on Instagram and YouTube. You can find Tanda at Tanda Madison on Instagram. And you can find Tom at Infinite Craftsman on Instagram. We welcome any comments. Please leave us five-star reviews on Apple so that we can make more skill madness come your way. See you next time. Hey, fellas, it's uh, tool time. We're bringing it back. It's time to invent a new tool. And this is something for me because I need a clamp that apparently doesn't already exist. And I thought it existed, but I was mistaken. I record everything on an H6 Zoom digital recorder. And on the back of this recorder, it has a little screw-in slot for a post that will fit into a microphone holder because bands use this to record music. However, because of the way my desk is laid out, it is now on the keyboard pullout drawer and I can't readily see it. And we have had some issues in the past where the batteries have run low or the recorder stopped recording and I didn't realize it. So I would like to 
put this up at eye level so that when I'm looking at Tom and Tanda, I can see them and also just glance over and make sure that the recorder is still recording. So what I need is, it's called a double-headed clamp. I need a, one side of it has to be able to clamp onto a, about a one-inch round metal pole that is holding up one side of the desk. And then the other side has to be adjustable to hold this um, insert that would go into a microphone stand. But then the middle where those two parts meet needs to be adjustable so that I can swivel it so that I can actually see the screen. It can't be, you know, set in stone. So how do we get to that point? I need to make this myself. Okay. I, ha I have some ideas. I have a clarifying question. Yeah. Real quick, Tanda. The the clip, what's the pole you're talking about? It needs to just clamp to the pole or clip to the pole? Right. It's it's the the way this desk is is it has like a a, a wood backing in the middle like it, it goes there's like a spine that's made out of wood and then on the sides there are these two poles. The whole desk is sort of triangular. Okay. Okay, Tanda, go ahead. I got an idea, but go ahead. So, so just to kind of recap, since this is something people are listening to, his device basically has the typical quarter 20 attachment that you would have on, on a camera to mount it on a tripod. And he's looking to mount it on this, right, this pole that's rising up out of the back of his desk in a way that he can keep it in front of, in view. Well, no, the pole is on the side. I could do it on the left or the right. It's not in the back. Oh, okay. It's off to, off to the side of the desk. Mm-hmm. So I could do right side or left side, and it's it's I've got plenty of room. I've got like maybe two feet of pole on each side, so I can raise and lower it as much as I want. But this, I thought that this clamp in the film industry, I was almost positive I had used a clamp like this in the past, but I was wrong. It's it's not. There's only like one side of it. The other side is a, is a pin that you would actually have to put into another clamp in order to make that work. And it still wouldn't work if you had both of them. And just one of those is like $70. And I'm not spending 140 bucks to make a clamp that, you know, I could make myself. Are you looking to make it out of scrap that you have around or something inexpensive to buy or? So I've, I'm, I could say scrap, but I've actually got aluminum, like machine stock aluminum that I've been collecting for years. One of the auctions I went to, I got these, I want to say they were like two-inch cubes. Maybe they, they might have been mm -hmm. three-inch. I can't remember now, but they're aluminum cube stock like that. I just, nobody wanted it. I grabbed it. I got like a whole box of it, like maybe like 40 of them. Well, I think there, uh, one approach would be to just work backwards from the, what I'm assuming is a quarter 20. And so if you start with a quarter 20 bolt, then then you have an attachment point for your device. And so there could be eye bolts or carriage head bolts or, or a number of different things. If you had a pair of vice grips that happened to have a quarter 20 on the adjustment, you could just hack the end of it off, and clamp the vice grips onto the pole, and then screw the recorder onto the, the remaining quarter 20 bolts sticking out. So uh, I have a solution, and... <laughs> I've been holding out. I'm using it right now. I made something like this for my phone. And I need to actually I'll send you I'll send you a picture so that you can share it with our friends. But one moment. Tom's spinning. 
So this is one of those like two dollar spring clamp, quick clamp, yeah. spring clamps from Home Depot, and I drilled a hole through it, and then I three D printed a just a flat piece with the a ball end. You might have to describe this better than I just did. It basically looks like a like a rear view mirror. Yeah. It has it has a flat piece that holds his phone like you would see a rear view mirror with a ball in the back to adjustment. Yeah. So it's a the the part that holds my phone is is from a bike mount for a phone. And it has that clamping knob that the ball goes into so it can swivel in it's not three sixty, but it's close enough. Um Obviously, you don't need that part. Well, actually, you do need that part. But instead of a phone mount, you need a quarter 20 mount. I don't think that the quarter 20 mount is going to work. And here's my reasoning. It's First off, I'm going to have to spin um, the entire digital recorder around in order for it to hit the part where it locks into place. And I'm going to have no control whatsoever over where that actually locks. Like, I'm not going to be able to adjust it. You can screw that into the phone, into the back of the recorder first, and then that stays fixed, and, and then whatever it's attached to gives you your adjustment. I, I, th- I still think it's going to be limiting. I want to be able to have basically like infinite adjustability. I don't want to be locked into one. Like, in other words, it, let's say I have something to clamp it to the pole, and then I use a, a quarter 20 bolt, okay? Then... However, like whatever level that bolt is at, that's it. I can't, I can't adjust it. Like that, that wherever that bolt, you just slide it up and down the pole, right? I, but I can't adjust the angle of the actual recorder for the screen. I can only adjust the level. So I want to. Do you have any of those uh, like machine nozzles, like for coolant nozzles or anything? The little segmented nozzles. Those you see people. Um, making and selling those or they're commercially available now for little tripods that you can adjust and they're basically the little snap together segments oh like the gorilla pods the gorilla yep. um yeah but i was thinking maybe you have a machine mm. with like an old coolant line or something on it that you could no, use to i don't have anything like that and uh, and they this also this um the digital recorder is heavy it's very well built so it's i don't think something like that would actually hold it up like I think that it would it would it might hold up for like a few seconds and then droop. Maybe I should explain the thing that that I was looking at. So, in the film industry, um, it's not a Matthews clamp. It's called I think it's called a Cardellini clamp, which doesn't mean anything to you guys. But think of like a browned aluminum disc, and it's you split it in half, and then on the inside of the disc there are circular cutouts that go straight through. So you could actually clamp it onto a a pole or a post, and then in the middle, there's a threaded rod that's going through it that you can attach to something else. Usually it's got a pin on it already. But what I want is basically two of those together. So that way I can clamp um, the one, let's just say, let's just call it a, a donut. The one donut gets clamped to the pole and then the donut next to it could hold the microphone attachment, the microphone um, stand attachment that screws into the back of the digital recorder. So theoretically, this is all like it would work. But the question is, how do I make it 
with what I've got. Okay. Well, with what you've got, I'm not sure. But a Cardellini... I, I, there's a picture here with a card of a Cardellini clamp with a Manfrotto mini ball head mm-hmm. that has a quarter 20 on it. And that's basically what you want. How much is it, Tom? $143. Yeah, I'm not paying that. I get that. <laughs> but that's... If... <laughs> If someone Googles Cardellini Manfrotto 494 mini ball head with Mike clamp, they'll see exactly what you want. Now, how do we get there? Yeah. Let's so we, we need to reverse engineer it to something that I can actually produce with no machining tools in my shop. I mean, I have I have a metal cutting bandsaw. You know, I've got a, a Milwaukee Porter band that I can cut up. But I mean, you can cut aluminum on almost anything. So that's not really an issue. But how do I get to... So here's here's the thing. Like I know I can cut the aluminum blocks up to I can cut them in half. Before I do that, I can I can probably drill through them to make like the the tubular inserts so that you know when I cut them in half, they will clamp onto something that's tubular. But how do I attach them in such a way that it will give me pressure in the middle in between the two heads and like in other words, the way that the clamps, the film clamps are designed, it's like a through bolt. Mm-hmm. So when you tighten it up, it tightens everything up. The problem is one end of the head is going to be on a metal tube and the other end of the head is going to be on a plastic holder. And my immediate thought is that plastic holder is going to get crushed. And so I need to I need to somehow apply pressure but but movable pressure in the middle where the two pieces are joined, but then each individual head also needs clamping pressure that can be adjusted. So we need like three separate adjustable positions for this thing to work. What, what about starting with like a little C-clamp and then just making um, something for the ends of the C-clamp to make it more like um, one of the Cardellini clamps? So it has like like maybe a little piece of angle iron tacked on to to the two sides of it so that it, you can screw it down and add the pressure on the two little pieces of angle iron. I, I, I get what you're saying, and that would work for the C-clamp, but then how do I attach anything to that to attach the, the recorder? If it's like an inexpensive C-clamp, then you can just, uh, like if it's an aluminum or a light, you know, a cheap metal, you can very, or I guess even if it's steel, you could just drill some holes in the C portion of the C clamp and then come off of it there to make an attachment for your recorder. So then you can clamp it on with the C clamp and then just use the body of the C clamp, which is no longer going to want to spin and turn because it's got an angle tacked onto one end. Right, but the body would be going horizontal and what I need to attach would be vertical. So it's like there's there's no clear, easy attachment point. But you can turn vertical whatever you attach to the the body of the C-clamp. You can turn that up vertical when you attach it. Tom looks like he's got an idea. Yep. You must have some of those magnetic base indicator holders. I have, I have one. I have a Starrett. The problem is that that's mm. not going to uh, to clamp it to a round piece of metal you know even with the magnet it's it's going to swivel because i've done it how much are the cheap noga arm knockoffs yeah but hold on a second you could you could easily take that you know take the magnetic base off obviously because it's too heavy and 
whatever, but you bolt that to a spring clamp with some rubber on the inside, it's not going to slip down a pole. No matter how, I mean, you couldn't put enough weight on that. Talking about just the arms? And that arm's got to be strong enough to hold your, huh? Talking about just the, just the steel arms? Do you have the one with the knob that adjusts like three positions all at once and then you tighten the knob? No, I have one that's from like the 50s. It's a, it's a steel oh. rod that's got a connector to another steel rod to the magnetic base. And it's all like uh, thumb screws okay, but, or wing nuts or something. Right. So each each joint is is um, has its own thumb screw. Right. And also... Tana, did you find out how much those are? I, I assume you're looking them up? For $29.99, um, you can get the Pengxi 11-inch adjustable, adjustable articulating friction magic arm and large super clamp. Compatible with DSLR camera rigs, LED lights, flashlights, LCD monitors, etc. Which is, I think, that's nice. Something that would get you just what you're what you're looking for. Twenty nine dollars is doable. That's doable. I could do twenty nine bucks. Yeah, that's a great option. Yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a knockoff of a of a Noga arm, the mechanism, but then it already has the quarter twenty and the little backup nut to position it where you want, and it comes with a with a little clamp, very similar to the yeah. uh, Catalini clamp. That sounds like the thing I need. So maybe I don't have to reinvent it. So yeah. our invention segment was uh, was kind of leaning on the the invention of Google. Yes. Well, I mean, you solved the problem. Solution segment. Just well, and just knowing and just knowing what what other things are out there that are similar. Right. If, as long as it works, that's all I care about. You know, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. Like I said, I I look through over a hundred film clamps, thinking there's got to be one here that would, and none of them. I mean, the the closest one was still too small. Totally. And it was uh, and it was very expensive. So for for listeners, Magic Arm search in Amazon will get you what we're talking about. All right. Well, I guess that's it. There we go. <laughs> Thanks for stopping can, by. Can everyone. we patent? Can we patent that? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. <laughs> can we? Are solutions patentable? Yeah. This is this is our 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 first claim is how we how we came up with it by googling. I invented this thing that already exists. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> yes. I had. Uh, I, I I don't I don't think they listen to the podcast. I had some uh, some people come by wanting me to reinvent things that already existed over the weekend. Yeah. Um, ag- again, and uh, it happens quite often. In fact, it was a repeat. Uh, um, in can you invent something for me that already exists? So I I googled my way out of it in in both cases. You should charge for preliminary searches. Indeed. Kind kind of like a patent search, but it's just Google. Yeah. Well, Google patents. I mean, it all kind of starts to run together. You know what it is? It's like I have this great idea. Yeah, you, it, it's surprise. It's surprising how many people have like ideas for things they want to make, and and haven't even tried to find it online, at all. I mean, it was very easy to find. Yeah. Right, but if you Google your one in a million idea, then China will get it and steal it from you just from your Google search. Ah, so you don't want to you don't want to be caught out there googling it. Because someone might, right. Uh, right? Yeah, it's a good thing I can't Google my vice designs. Oh, there's one. Well, and if you've come up with a clever with a clever name for it, and you Google that name, you won't find it either. You know what I keep thinking? That happened to me once. Which, which, I I invented something I wanted to call the Humi Cube for humidity, and it exists. Well, not the thing I made, but the name exists. I was like, I was totally bummed out.
So thinking about like the names of things, I'm gonna have several different vice designs and I wanna name them with marks. So like the Mark one, the Mark two, that kind of thing. And Mark with a C? Well, see, that's the thing. I don't know how the, is it, is it just MK1 or is it, is it spelled out Mark with a K or is it spelled out Mark with a C? Like how, I don't know how those things go. I've never named anything Mark 1, Mark 2 or version 1, version 2. You know what I mean? So I got to find out so that I could properly name something in the future. I have, I have a coworker, speaking of naming things, that, uh, that, that likes to come up with names for things. And so I create 3D models of, of something and, and design a whole assembly. And I have a name for it. You know, I, I come up with some name of how it functions. And as soon as, as, soon as he's shown the, the drawing, he comes up with some, some clever name he likes for it and then starts referring to it as that in meetings and presentations. And then I find myself having to like remember what he named it because that's what everybody calls it from that point on, <laughs> even though it has nothing, <laughs> nothing to do with its function. And so, uh, yeah. Uh, fellas, I'm not cleaning up all these tools. <laughs>